Before we get to today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Veracross. With a single record database and the strongest API in the industry, Veracross is the leading SIS provider for private and independent schools, and it's now available in Australia. Support us by supporting them, so visit veracross.com backslash edleaders to learn more. Now let's get to today's show. All right, welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education, where we believe with better leaders, we'll make better schools. I'm your host, Luke Callier, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Before we get started, if you haven't already, you should sign up to the weekly email sent out every few weeks by the team at Ed Leaders. Matt, you know the question's coming. What should someone expect? if they sign up. Well, I thought you might ask this question. You know, one of the things that I really like about the newsletter is we always have a quote. And the quote on one of our recent uh, newsletters was, leaders don't create followers, they create more leaders. So I love that idea. I think it really aligns with what we're trying to do here at Ed Leaders. You know, and if you need a little bit of inspiration, newsletter, quote, will set you up for the day. How's that, Luke? Well played, Matt. I like that you've actually read the newsletter, so that's a 9 out of 10. You can sign up to the newsletter at edleaders.com.au. Now on to today's guest, David Runge. David is a co-founder and director at Future Schools with expertise in change leadership, culture, innovation. Dave supports schools on their transformation journey, working alongside executive leadership teams, boards, associations, educational organizations, and across 100 member schools. He's also a facilitator for Adaptive Cultures, which helps organizations prepare for and deliver cultural evolution and innovation. And over the last few years, Matt and I have had several interesting and great chats Mm. with Dave. And so we're both very excited to finally have him on the show. Mm. So without further ado, let's get to it. Dave, welcome to the show. Well, so thank you for having me, first of all. What what an opening. It was full of energy. I'm really excited to see where this conversation goes. Excellent. I've got to bring the energy because Matt never brings the energy. He brings the energy in the closing statement. I've got to bring it early on, but that's okay. Now, as you know, we love to start the show with a little bit of uh, a bit about your journey, you know, your mm. journey into education, your journey into future schools. Tell us about your journey. Yeah, sure. Well, in terms of the education journey, um, I began my education journey as a, as a teacher, secondary school teacher. And I must say, whilst I was teaching, whilst I was in schools, um, absolutely loved what I was doing. Really enjoyed working with young people and had the great privilege, I think the great privilege of working alongside some really inspirational educators, um, some colleagues, but also being led by some really inspirational leaders um, and learning from them and watching what they did in order to bring about the type of transformation and change that they brought about within the schools that they led. So started as an educator, particularly teaching in the commerce area, um, but quickly found my way into residential boarding environments. Um, and had a ball working in boarding environments and was in that space for around about 15 years. Um, And that, of course, ensured that I saw a number of wellbeing issues. And that was a step-off point into working in wellbeing and coordinating wellbeing programs at a number of schools. Um, And for me, that was a really important part of my work, um, both personally learning about my own self and the wellbeing needs of myself, but also supporting the wellbeing of the young people that I worked alongside and the staff that um, I was leading at the time. So that's a quick snapshot of the professional journey. And David, there's some highlights in terms of those inspirational leaders that you worked with. You know, who might they be and how did they shape your your journey um, to leadership? Yeah, sure. So I suppose um, in terms of what I noticed about the way they led, um, many of the leaders that I'm thinking about right now um, were both energetic and inspiring, but also compassionate and caring. And I think that combination for me was um, was really important in my own development. Um, watching those people both created the space for the other people around them, the people who were following. I loved your quote actually at the start. This idea that leaders um, don't what, re- reframe it for me again. Yeah, Matt? leaders don't create followers; they create more leaders. Yeah, I just think that's beautiful because really that's what I'm talking to here in terms of the way these leaders that were leading me at the time created the space for me to step in as a leader um, to grow both personally and professionally, I think was at the heart of what I noticed about their their leadership at the time. And another thing you mentioned there was your learning about well-being of self. Um, mm. You know, it feels to me that in the last probably two to four years, 
more educators and more people in general have gone on that journey of maybe trying to start to understand their own well-being of self. Perhaps you're mm. a bit um, early to the party. What did you learn that you could possibly share with the audience around how you came to understand what made you well? That's an interesting um, framing. I'm not sure I was early to the party because I actually think I'm still at the party you know, in terms of my own learning and development, and I think we all are. And I suppose um, caring for ourselves in that way and understanding that we are all on this developmental journey is really at the heart of what I came to understand about well-being and my own well-being and my own wellness, um, that it's not a finished product, that you don't get to some sort of mercurial end and go, well, I've made it, that we're constantly in beta, we're constantly in development as people at a personal level and then that flows into our professional work. Yeah, And I suppose um, one of the things that I've come to recognise is that you can't separate separate out the personal from the professional. Now, we come to work as whole people, right? We come to work as authentic whole people who have had something happen in the morning, who have had a circumstance play out as they drive to work. We arrive in a way where we're authentically whole. And I think one of the steps forward for organisations might be to understand that at a deeper level. It's certainly really hard to do that, I think. And Matt and I have talked a lot about the backpack that people bring in. Uh, and you never know what's in the backpack for for someone. There's no signs above someone saying, hey, I just dealt with X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and D this morning before I even walked in the door. Um, mm. And I think you're right, like going at a deeper level would, would possibly um, make organisations tick just that little bit more when you kind of have a really good understanding of what's going on for people. Yeah. Certainly, um, you know, a piece of work that's really inspired me in this space is the work of Bob Keegan, um, and he's got a great book called Everybody Culture, and essentially it outlines that we come to work in our fullness, and as leaders we need to understand that and cater for that, that people bring their whole self. Um, and I think that finding the balance between our professional obligations and showing up with authenticity for me is something that as leaders um, as professionals in all spaces, we could and potentially should be paying more attention to. Hmm. And I'm, I'm sort of curious as we sort of unpack this notion of bringing your whole self to work and, you know, helping leaders to discern what their people need and, and what they're potentially carrying. And, you know, I wonder what we potentially can do around that notion of discernment and empathy and understanding um, before we get cracking for the day, any any sort of strategies you've seen, um, you know, or any advice that you would have for leaders um, trying to understand their people a little bit better? Number one for me would be listening, yeah, deep listening. Um, and I often, when I'm talking with leaders or, or working with teams, I talk about this idea of um, what is the tune beneath the words, yeah? So we can listen to the words, but we can listen more deeply than that and try and understand what is the tune that's playing out across this team or for this individual. And I think once we get to that level, we really start to genuinely connect and understand people and can therefore um, better serve and better lead within our schools. So for me, that deep listening would be number one, really understanding people that we work alongside and that we're in service of. You talked about your journey um, early on, mm -hmm. but at some point, you stepped out of uh, schools and um, stepped into Future Schools, originally the Future Schools Alliance. Um, talk to us about how that came to be and, you know, that, that leap of, you know, maybe faith to kind of move from one area to another. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was doing a piece of work, a piece of research in the futures and foresight space, um, particularly around what the future of schooling might look like, could look like. Um, and what sort of tools and frameworks and methodologies we would use to support educators to open up those potentials and to move into those futures. Um, and that work um, came to be known and I had a number of educators then attracted to it and seek out my guidance around, well, how could we use some of those tools and frameworks to support our schools? So really that was a step-off point into working with schools. So it was on the back of a piece of work I was doing, interest came, and 10 years later, here I am still working with schools around how to create innovation and change and transformation and evolution across, across schools and across now other organisations, not-for-profits and, and increasingly in the corporate space. So it, it really was just by chance that someone saw the work, was attracted, called me in, and there starts the show. 
And Dave, one of your great sort of collaborators and and one of the people that we're sort of speaking of is is Peter Hutton. And, you know, I've got this image of in my head that, you know, you guys are sitting down for coffee, you're meeting each other for the first time and there's a spark um, and you're having this great conversation. How did, the two do, how did the two of you meet? And tell us about that, that first encounter. Yeah, so Templestar was one of those schools that I'm referring to. So Peter was principal at Templestar at the time um, and he saw the work in Futures and Foresight and some of the tools and frameworks was attracted to them. Um, and I went to Templestar to do a body of work alongside him and the team there, the staff there, um, and that really was one of those stepping off points that I described. Um, so we really iterated and prototyped with some of these tools to work out what worked, what didn't work, and how they could support increasing innovation and increasing the momentum and the speed around change within a school. Um, so that was one of the step-off points that I described. More deeply to your question, um, you've got this image of us sitting around and talking, and really that's pretty much what it was. We were talking about what is the potential here? So we're doing it here at Temple State College and Temple State College at the time was becoming known or was known for being quite innovative. Um, how could we step out and do that more broadly across the education sector and support other schools and school leaders to, to do the sort of work that we were doing at TC? Um, so it was as simple as that. It was sit down, have a coffee, have a conversation and, and then start making phone calls, reach out. Hey, see what you're doing there. It looks really interesting. Can we have a chat about how we might be able to support that? Um, and it was pretty much tapping interesting, innovative people on the shoulder and saying, we'd like to collaborate with you. That's how it all started. And here we are, you know, near on sort of seven years later, um, working across many schools, both here and internationally. And you kind of obviously started, you know, I have a recollection that in the early days you had kind of seven schools, eight schools, nine schools, something like that early on. You know, going from that point of, you know, working with a couple of schools to 10 schools to 100 schools, what's that journey been like for future schools? And has it kind of been what you thought it might be if you kind of were to kind of go back to, you know, yourself kind of seven years ago and kind of think forward when you were first kind of starting with the idea? Has it been more difficult than you hoped as well? I think all of these initiatives, when you step out, when you lead anything, is difficult. So I think that's a short answer to has it been difficult? Of course, it's been at times difficult. But the flip side of that is that it's been incredibly uplifting and inspiring. Like I'm incredibly privileged to get to work alongside, listen into, support, guide, but also deeply learn from many extraordinary leaders across the country and internationally. It's a real privilege. And, you know, I, I don't forget that every day I get up and I go to work and I work alongside some amazing educators. So that part has been really uplifting. More to your question, it's been an incredibly, what I'd describe as windy road. Yeah, it's certainly been non-linear. Um, we've had ups and downs along the way. And that's been good because we've learned from both the ups and the downs. And I think that idea of iteration, continuous learning, continuous development has been at the heart of what we've certainly attempted to do at future schools. Um, one of the things that we are really conscious of is listening into what people are telling us because we need to be responsive we need to be in tune with you know what the what the education sector is experiencing what the education sector is going through what leaders are experiencing and then respond to that you know and be in service of that so that's been certainly one of our our mantras and our mandates. And Dave, as we've developed our relationship with you, um, you know, we've talked a lot about Future Schools being a purpose-driven organisation and, mm. you know, and you've been able to articulate really clearly what, what Future Schools is all about. So I'm just wondering, you know, for the listeners out there, if you could describe the sort of the mission, um, you know, and purpose for Future Schools. Sure. Um, so in short, I would say we're about supporting schools and school leaders on their innovation journey and around whatever the adaptation um, objectives, aspirations they hold are. You know, so we support schools to innovate and adapt is the shorthand, is the handle, if you like, um, that captures what we do. But I guess what I'm trying to articulate, and I hope what's coming through in the conversation, is that in doing that, we want to be super connected to supporting the system more broadly to evolve. Um, and we see ourselves as being part of that. It's not us in the entirety, like it's all of us, it's you guys, it's other people in this space working in collaboration to support system evolution. And that system evolution is both 
at a jurisdiction level, be it in WA or be it in Victoria or be it in New South Wales, across the country. And for us increasingly, hopefully playing our part in international evolution and transformation of school systems. So for us, the, the aspiration is large, but of course that becomes grounded when you walk into a school and you're working alongside a leadership team of say five or 10 to support what they're doing in their school, which I believe is part of the bigger system transformation piece. Yeah, so part of what we've tried to do is lift up the great work that people around the country are doing so that other people can learn from that. And of course, then they contextualize that to their own setting. We never say, here is the model, here is the way. And what we actually say is, here's some ideas, here's some frameworks, here's some tools. How can you contextualize the learning from another school to your setting? Because every educational setting is different. And I think that piece around contextualization and carrying in our own professional personal agency is really important in this system transformation conversation and often gets lost. Well, I think kind of that's one of the challenges of systems change, isn't it? That, you know, even within a, within a, the whole system or within smaller systems, um, you know, every school has a contextual element that is different and what works, you know, 10 minutes down the road for that community may not work in this community or what may work for that group of teachers may not work for this group of teachers. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges in education that it's not like for like in every high school and sometimes potentially why making change is so hard is because you know what one person thinks at a, at a government level should be the right answer is not the right answer for every context um, and so I'm wondering with that lens you know over the last 10 years at a systems level what sort of changes do you think or what sort of progress have we made as an education system what progress have we made? Is yeah, that the question? Like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we've certainly made progress around um, our awareness of some of the wellbeing and mental health issues that are playing out socially and how they then flow into our schools. I think we've definitely made, a, made progress in that space. Um, I think we're making progress around increasing autonomy of professional educators and how they bring their best self to their work. I mean, I've, I've definitely noticed a, a growing conversation around that. So I think those two things have been areas for celebration. And we should celebrate that. We should celebrate the fact that we are, we are making progress. Um, I don't think that discounts the fact that there's some pretty significant pressure points in the system at the moment. Um, and last week I was talking with educators around some of these points. And, you know, I would contend that across many schools at the moment there's a growing um, passive resistance or disengagement on the part of young people. And of course, I say that referencing my earlier point around all of these comments are contextual because some schools won't be seeing or experiencing this, right? But the teachers I was talking to last week were certainly um, experiencing this and articulating it. Um, we're seeing huge issues in terms of um, leadership burnout, um, teacher resignation, staffing shortages. You know, we're seeing those things play out across the country. So these are, I guess, what for me, these are the compelling um, drivers, if you like, to why we need to be thinking and acting now on system transformation. Um, because if we don't, I would contend that some of these things have the potential of getting worse um, and becoming significant issues for us at a broader educational level. And Dave, as you sort of unpack some of those challenges, you know, some of the conversations mm. we've had here on Ed Leaders is this notion of systems change from, you know, outside in or inside out. You know, and I can't mm. help think that, you know, if we're thinking about systems transformation and that contextual piece, um, so much of, of, I guess, the answers to these challenges need to come from the ground. They need to come from the trench of schools. Does that resonate? 100%. And it's exactly why we started Future Schools the membership part of future schools in the way that we did. You know, so we now have over 100 members who are supporting each other in this transformation that you describe. Yeah, so um, ground up, if you like, trenches up, as you describe it. So that's an incredibly important part. It's important on a number of fronts, but for me, one of the primary reasons that it's so important is because it's honouring the professionalism of the people who are at the forefront of the work. Yeah, it's where the work really happens and we need to lift that professionalism up again. We need to ensure that that personal agency and all of those really deep learnings that people who are close to the work have 
are put into the solution bucket, are part of helping drive change across the system. So 100% we need to be um, bottom up, we need to be sides in and we need to be top down and working on this together because it won't come from one person or one organisation. It'll be a collective effort. I mean, that's really at the heart of certainly my personal drive, but more particularly the drive of future schools as an organisation. Something I'm curious about is this notion that um, we spend a lot of time thinking about the problems in education or we hear a lot about the problems in education, um, but we don't necessarily always spend enough time maybe thinking about the solutions mm. that we can have in education. And I think what you're saying is that you try and help spread those solutions, but is there something more we can be doing, you know, cross-sectorally about coming together to create solutions to some of the issues that we've got going forward? I think there's people already trying to do that. And like, I think you guys, you know, through this podcast and through the work that you do at Ed Leaders are supporting people to move toward the solutions. And I use that language quite deliberately, like to move toward the solutions, because it actually lifts up the agency of the people involved in solving the problems. Yeah, And I feel like that's, I know I've banged on about this point a couple of times, but this idea that the people who are closest to the problem should be part of the solution, have, have the answers, is really fundamental to the work and the frameworks that we use in our work. Um, so I hold that really close and really dear. Because once you start to lose that connection, um, people can then, I find, disconnect from being part of the solution and say, well, it's not my problem. Yeah, it's all of our problems, right? We're all implicated in this. So let's all step in as part of the solution. Um, so that would be at a high level, you know, what I'd offer in response to your question. For me, how do you do that is often the question that I asked. Right? How do you actually then move toward that? There's a couple of things that are fundamental to me in supporting transformation and there's a couple of principles that I hold dear. One is follow the energy, right? Where are the green shoots? Follow the energy, find the green shoots and amplify those green shoots. So for me, that's really important. Um, ensure that we explore curiously, you know, so when in following the energy and finding the green shoots, how can we explore curiously, right? And hold things lightly, right? Not hold things too tightly that we can't then explore more broadly. So that's the second thing that really informs our work. And then another thing that informs our work among a whole lot of principles that we use to guide what we do is this idea of celebrating the positive intent. People are trying. Right? People are really trying hard to solve some of these complex problems, and they are complex problems. They're embedded, they're systemic, they're structural, they're really difficult problems to solve, and people are trying really hard to be part of the solution. We need to celebrate the positive intent. We need to celebrate the progress that people are making along this path to solution. So those three things are really fundamental for me and the work that we do. And Dave, is there any sense of what's getting in the way of, you know, leaders moving to solutions? Um, you know, is there a sense that there are, you know, it's confidence, you know, it's it's um, loss of momentum, you know, motivation. What do you think is holding our, our leaders back from, from all collectively moving towards that solution? Yeah, I don't think it's one thing. Um, I think there's a number of things that, you know, are embedded in in that. Um, I think the fact that we work in a nested system is part of that and sometimes we feel like we're um, just empowered, right? So I would flip that and say where can we influence the system? Where can we make a difference? What can we do? Yeah, so flipping it to how we can move forward is a really important part of answering the question that you posed there, Matt. Um, I'm about to release a white paper on system transformation um, with a colleague of mine. And one of the things that we identified in the interview process as we brought that paper together was that worldviews and people's perspectives around what education is and what it can become was sometimes getting in the way of transformation or movement. Yeah, So the deep-held beliefs that people have based on their own educational experience, based on a system that's really well known to us all, and based on what people think they can or can't do, was getting in the way of supporting transformation across the system. So we're increasingly doing a lot of work around how do you liberate people from um, worldviews that might be getting in the way of them progressing or moving forward. So that was one of the things that we found in our research. And is that the worldview of teachers and people within education? 
or the worldview of those outside of education, whether it's government officials, parents, the like? It's all. It's all. And it's interesting you ask that question because I'm just thinking right now about that paper and one of the lines in that paper that we put, and I'm paraphrasing now, is this idea that we're all part of the solution. We're all implicated in it, so therefore we all need to be part of the solution. And we outline all as being parents, government stakeholders, department stakeholders, um, leaders in schools, educators, young people, right, have to be lifted up to be part of the solutions that they're facing into. So we articulated that by all, we mean all. We mean all people that have a part to play in this system. And I want to go back to that um, sort of idea of following the energy, um, mm. you know, and finding the, the the green shoots, particularly as mm. we move towards transformation, you know, through through innovation mm. and, and doing things differently. What's your sense of, you know, what needs to, to exist in a culture? You know, what are those preconditions in a school culture that you need to actually start to move forward? Mm. We find within teams, right, within cultures or within schools, those that can move forward most rapidly are those that can hold a space to have the conversations that need to be had, right, to speak the unspeakables, to talk about the things that otherwise inside organisations or school cultures we might just leave on the shelf or put under the table, right? So for us that would be one precondition to supporting transformation. Um, There's a number, but I'll talk to two more. The other one that we find supports the rapid uptake of change within any school is the idea of shared responsibility. And I've spoken about it a lot in the podcast so far, the fact that um, if there's an issue that sits inside our organisation, then at some level we've co-constructed that. We've had some part to play. So if we share responsibility for the issue and we share responsibility for moving that forward, we can amplify the change effort, right? We can move it faster than we otherwise could. So this idea of shared responsibility is really foundational and fundamental to the work that we do. And certainly when we see change and rapid evolution inside organisations, we see that coming through. And the final one is this personal agency piece or what we call independent judgment. Right? So people come to work and they step into their own agency, their own autonomy, and they sharp in a way whereby they make decisions that are in best service of the school's objectives, aspirations or purpose. Right? So they bring their own independent judgment to the work that they're doing. Once we can liberate that and bring that to life across a population of educators, across a population of young people within a school, we start to see more rapid transformation. So those three things are fundamental. So I'll just go through naming the issues, talking to the things that need to be spoken about, shared responsibility for the work, and personal agency, autonomy, or independent judgment. If you love what we do here at Ed Leaders, then please support us by supporting our sponsors. And today's episode sponsor is Veracross. Is your school ready for the modern age? Well, we've got good news for you. Veracross, the leading CIS provider for private and independent schools, is now available in Australia. Trusted by hundreds of schools in more than 30 countries around the world, Veracross is the only 100% cloud-based, single-record database built exclusively for private and independent schools. It's one system for your entire school. Integrations with popular edtech solutions like Schoolbox, Pixevity, and Digistorm enable seamless workflows and easy-to-access information. Plus, their in-country data center improves network speed and privacy so you can rest easy knowing your school's data is secure and protected with Veracross. Make 2023 the year your school moves to the cloud. To learn more about Veracross, visit veracross.com backslash edleaders that's v-e-r-a-c-r-o-s-s dot com backslash edleaders and it would mean the world to us if you or your school's director of it check them out now back to today's show you kind of mentioned in your previous answer about um systems change and you know the work that you've been doing being kind of everyone's responsibility yeah and you we've kind of zeroed in there on the culture it takes within a school is there something, um, you know, when, when we amplify that out across 200 schools or 2,000 schools, mm. how do we kind of continue to, 
you know, move the needle, if you will, on creating cultures across all of those schools that kind of lends to what you were just been talking about there, which is, you know, the, you know, being open to the issues, sharing the responsibility and, and that personal agency. Yeah, so it's, it's all good and well to zero in and focus on the individual yeah, or teams or groups. That's all good and well. Mm. But I guess where you're heading the conversation now is to what are the structural elements yeah, what are the reinforcing structural elements that need to be in place to both reinforce the change that we're trying to bring to life mm-hmm. and or liberate it, fast track it, allow it to happen, right? And that's a really important part of this conversation as well. Structural elements such as policy, such as procedure, right, such as the strategies we hold, those structural elements are foundational to supporting evolution, change or transformation inside any system. Yeah, and if those structural elements aren't in line with some of our earlier conversation around liberating potential, right? Around lifting up the best inside teams, around allowing a pathway toward, you know, innovation and new ways of seeing the work that we're doing. If those structural elements don't support that, then we have a scenario where people will refer to what some of those reinforcing mechanisms are calling them. Yeah. So we need to absolutely pay attention to individual growth, social or team growth. And how those structural elements reinforce the types of things we want to bring to life across our organisations. I think touching on that, those those structural um, pieces um, to deliberate potential is really important. You know, we talk about that sort of the pragmatic notion of of creating space for innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my observations might be that you know we all want to sort of innovate and move forward, but we don't necessarily create the right structural environment of time, space, you know, reflection. Um, developing insights, gathering data. My sense is that we don't do that terribly well. Um, we expect people to kind of do that work while they're, you know, uh, still doing the nuts and bolts of, of school life. Um, is that what you've experienced? And perhaps what are what are some of the, the the best strategies you've seen to sort of create the space for innovation? I've certainly seen it. Um, I'm just thinking about one of the most common reflections I get when I'm working with a school or a system is we haven't got time for that. Yeah, it's the it's the busyness response, right? And that's actually really true. Right? People in schools are incredibly busy. Yep, so that response is a true statement. So then the response to that response is, well, how can we, where can we create space and time for this work? If this is a commitment imperative, if this is something that we really need to bring to life in our school, then we need to prioritise it and privilege it. Right, so we need to carve out some space. We need to find some resourcing. So one of the first things that I do when I'm working with a system or a team is support them around how do we resource this? Right, because we can get in trouble when we walk down this path of going, we're keen to change, we want to innovate, we want to bring to life new ways of doing things, and then we realise that we haven't got the space, the resourcing, the time, the emotional energy to do that. It can be really deflating for groups, incredibly deflating. Yeah, and we've all seen this, we've all experienced this in our work. So for me, ensuring that we have that resourcing in place is super important to reinforcing the change effort. Right? And we describe that we describe that in our work as a commitment imperative. Have we got a commitment imperative for this work? If we have got a commitment imperative, then how are we going to resource that financially, socially, in terms of people, and emotionally? Because this work is challenging. It's hard. Right. So we need the emotional space to do the work as well. Well, just to get granular for a second, Dave, and you may may or may not want to share, is there anything you could share with the audience of schools that have found a way? Like you you've talked to them initially, they've said, look, we don't have we don't have any money, we don't have we can't find time, but then maybe a month or two later have come back and said, Oh, we've done XYZ to find that resource or, or what have they done in that XYZ that you could share? Um, to, to create and find the resource. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, when you say create and find the resource, we can look at that through a financial lens, you know, and clearly at the moment there's some pretty significant financial pressures on a number of schools around the country. Um, so finding the financial resource to support a change initiative, sometimes with an external um, support can be quite challenging. Um, one thing that one school did was ensure that all the classes in the upper primary through early secondary were fully allotted. Yeah, so they ensure that they had great efficiencies 
within that part of the school to free up some capital to then invest into the change effort that they wanted to see come to life across the school, right? So the efficiency conversation can be really helpful in supporting the freeing up of financial resources. But that's only one part because you you need to also free up the resource that is emotional, right? And I was saying earlier that this work can be really challenging and deep and um, encourage us or or require us to look inside ourselves to do what I describe as the inner work, the inner work of change, right? That change is not just outside of ourselves. It actually requires us to do inner work and think about how we need to evolve as individuals in order to support the organisation to evolve. That emotional work takes time and it can take a toll. So you need to create the space personally for that. And then, of course, there's the space required of people within the organisation, both leaders staff and students to step into the change work, to step into the evolution and transformation work and be part of it, and that takes time. So to answer your question at a more granular level, this idea of efficiencies across a school, ensuring that there's really good efficiency and scale, can really support the freeing up of the capital required to do this sort of innovation and change. That's just really great advice for school leaders as they think about, you know, uh, a commitment imperative and think about innovation and think about what they really want to sort of take forward. So this is, you know, a great conversation, Dave. And, you know, one of the the things I sort of reflect on in your work is you get to visit schools everywhere, um, you know, and including sort of visits overseas and, you know, you've been to Finland and, you you know, you spent some time at the Green School in Bali. What, what are some of the, 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 the systems or experiences you've had that's been most exciting for you um, and things that you've reflected on? Yeah, okay. So in terms of um, innovation, I guess at a high level, what I see is pockets of innovation in schools all over the world. Yeah? So there's pockets of innovation everywhere. And we've got some of the most um, innovative schools, innovative parts of schools in this country, in every jurisdiction right, across the country. Like we've got some amazing innovation playing out in schools in Australia. What I've noticed in my travels is that very few schools are able to scale that across the whole school. Very few schools are able to bring to life the aspirations that they hold across the whole school. And that's both here and internationally. So there's the challenge for us. How do we actually create scale around the types of change we want to see within our schools? That's the first thing. What I've noticed about these innovative environments across the country and internationally is that there's a great level of what I described earlier, shared responsibility for the work that's happening inside those schools. Innovation doesn't sit in one portfolio or with one person. It actually is everybody's responsibility, right, as is change, as is transformation, as is improvement, all of those things that we could wind into the conversation today. That's the first thing I notice. And the second thing, and I certainly noticed this when I was in Finland last year, is that many of these schools have a really heightened level of professional responsibility. So the educators inside the school are praised, are celebrated, are acknowledged, are lifted up as, you know, to use the word experts or experienced in their area of inquiry, the area that they know best. So for me, that's really foundational as well. How do we keep lifting up the professionalism of people who are working at the forefront, who are on the ground, who, as I said earlier, are both part of but have a really good insight to the solutions? So how do we lift that up? How do we praise their professionalism? How do we make that really foundational and central to the change efforts that we're seeking to bring to life as educational leaders? You kind of talked a little bit before about, well, you've talked just then about the scale and the scalability within organisations and, you know, potentially there's pockets. And I can't help but think that that links to your previous kind of comment, which is about the emotional toll um, that it takes for people to make change and how I would suspect that that emotional toll is different for different people. Um, And also linking back to one of your, you know, your earlier comments that, people coming to school with different things going on in their own life have a different ability to take on more emotional toll when they're at school. And I think there's that challenge then of like when everyone's on their own journey in that space and the toll is different for individuals, that length of time that it takes for 
person A to be able to implement, make change, get on the bus, whatever you want to describe it as, and person B and C are, are all different. Um, and I think that's a, it's a really interesting challenge for leaders to understand. Um, is there any leaders that you've seen that have done that better than others in understanding that? The leaders that I've seen that do that really well have a really strong grasp on what are the strengths that each of the team members bring to the conversation, to the work. Yeah. And how do we amplify and liberate that? How do we bring that into the pool as part of the way forward? So the leaders that are doing it best, in my opinion, are really zeroing in on ensuring that every person in their team is bringing that thing that they're really good at to the table. Yeah, and they're building teams that are diverse. So in building teams that are diverse, they're actually creating inclusion, right, which is a really interesting um, part of the conversation. That diversity, I think, is part of the answer. Do you think that filters down the level as well? So the leader not only knows their teams, but the teams of their team members in a school situation? Most certainly, most certainly. And how are they lifting up the best parts of that team, the things that the individuals in that team bring to the table every day, how are they amplifying those things? How are they lifting them up? How are they helping that person grow and support in that area? But at the same time, um, not discounting that we all have growth edges, right? There's things that we can all work on. There's things that we can develop, right? And I think part of our own personal growth and our own personal journey as individuals and also as leaders within schools is to work on our growth edges, right? Work on something that's a stretch for you, Actually step into that and know that the outcome isn't going to be perfect first time around, and that's okay. Right? And schools that have that developmental mindset, in my opinion, are fast-tracking growth and change within their context because it's safe to step forward and say, hey, I'm working on this. I want, it. I want some help on it. I want some support. Yeah? And we put that on the table. So in many of the teams I work with, that type of growth edge would be put on the table and we would celebrate that that people are bringing that growth edge to the conversation because they want to work on that. So that openness, that transparency creates the space for people to be really genuine and authentic within the team. So I'd say focusing in on strength is important, but at the same time, not neglecting at least one, maybe even two areas of growth. Mm. And so Dave, we're talking there about, you know, the concept of scale strengths and those growth edges. Um, and I can't help think that if we don't get that scale concept right, um, that we end up with short-sighted solutions that actually aren't impactful. Um, mm. You know, and I just wanted what your sense of is if we haven't done that front-end work properly, um, that actually we don't end up with those impactful um, or transformational um, outcomes. Is, is that yeah. does that resonate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that in our experience, in my experience. Um, becomes an issue is what I call pulling the pin too early. Yeah? So we have a commitment imperative. We're all on board. There's excitement. We've created the space. We've got the resourcing. The emotional energy is up. We do the work in inverted commas. And then before the work is integrated or embedded, we've moved on to something new. Right? And people then revert to what they knew before. Right? So holding that imperative for a long enough time to create a culture or a change within the culture that is embedded is 100% fundamental to this sort of work. Yeah? So we describe that as integration. We describe that as embedding the change within the culture. So it becomes normalised in the way we do things and why we do things that way. So for me, that's really important is holding that imperative for long enough that the change effort has been integrated into the culture. You know, in our in our journey, I... I there's times where I think we've done both. I mean, any comments there, Matt? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, look, I think that 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 idea of holding the line has been an interesting one. You know, if you do have, you know, an imperative piece, you've got to hold the line long enough to actually embed it in culture and it's the way we do things around here. And I've definitely seen us do that perhaps in our workplaces from time to time, Luke. Um but then I've also seen us, you know, spend a lot of time in that ideation space and prototyping space and realize actually that's not the most impactful way of doing things. So you actually pull the pin before you implement something. Um, so I just, there's such a nuance there. Um, th that would be my reflection. 
I'm interested, uh, David, you know, in hearing a little bit about the work that you do. You've, we've talked a lot about an education sense, mm-hmm. you know, so far, but, you know, how you see the difference, the appetite for, um, you know, the creating the adaptive cultures, that the work that you do there, and the difference between kind of the discussions that we've been having in the edgy world um, and is there any difference in the corporate world, you know, around that preparedness for change, the culture that, you know, that you need to create, you know, innovation in a, in a corporate sense, are they any different to us than in the edgy world or is it exactly the same in terms of their preparation and their preparedness? There's many similarities. You know, there's actually many similarities and many of the challenges are quite similar. Um, in terms of preparedness, I think that sometimes there's a greater focus on the role that culture plays in supporting change or innovation within a school. Um, I think that we need to be paying more attention to culture, yeah, really zeroing in on culture. And I think sometimes in education we can gloss over culture and we can describe it as good or bad. You know, I've often heard that when I go and work with teams, I say we've got a good culture. Yeah, or we've got a toxic culture. Yeah, and my response to that would be we need to diagnose that with um, a greater level of awareness yeah, in terms of what's happening here because, for me, culture is never good or bad. Right? It's never that. It's far more nuanced. Yeah? So how do we deeply understand the cultures that we're working with, working in? And more than that, to what degree is the culture, the way we do things and why we do things that way, in short, Right, the patterns that we've created across the organisation, is that supporting where we want to go or is it getting in the way of where we want to go? And once we can lift that up and see that and see particularly the actions and the patterns that we create within our organisations, we can either remove the inhibitors to fast-track the change or we can amplify those things that really work well for us to fast-track the change. So for me, zeroing in around the cultures that we have in our organisations is really important. Back to your question around the differences and the similarities across, say, not-for-profits, corporate, and education, as I said, many of the challenges are quite similar, right? Many of the challenges that you know, our, our corporate cousins are facing into are very similar to the challenges we're facing into. They've got sh- staff shortages. They've got issues around well-being in the workplace. Right? They have issues around um, leader burnout. So all of those things are similar for them as they are for us. I guess the big question for me is collectively across organisations, and I use that term really broadly, what can we do to support people to move those challenges forward? Because we we know, to your point earlier, like we know what some of the problems are. Right? We're pretty good at mounting the case for change. Right? We're pretty good at doing that in education particularly. My question is how do we then create the space for change? How do we move forward and deal with some of these complexities? Because I would contend that the world is getting faster, it's getting more complex. Most probably the issues that we're currently seeing aren't going away without our intervention, right? The solutions sit within us and between us. So really the offer is, the invitation is, how do we collectively solve the problems that we're facing into? And Dave, you've got this unique, um, you know, unique job where you get to work with corporates, but you also get to work mm-hmm. with schools. And you know, I'm I'm curious: are there some lessons for schools that could be taken from, you know, the corporate work that you do, and and you know, dealing with corporate cultures? Are there some lessons? Hmm. I don't think there's any lessons that we don't we don't already necessarily know, or that we haven't experienced. Like at the end of the day, um, schools are still organisations. Right? They're still made up of individuals. Right? They have purpose and objectives. They have resourcing. They have structures and systems. In that way, they look similar to any other organisation in the world. Yeah? Maybe their deeper purpose, their reason for being, has at times a really strong and profound social imperative and a moral imperative. I would certainly argue that. So maybe there's a difference in terms of aspiration, intent and purpose compared to some corporate organisations. But certainly what we're seeing in corporate organisations at the moment is a greater move toward understanding their social responsibility. So we're certainly seeing that. We're certainly seeing a profound understanding of the role of mental health and wellbeing in the workplace. 
right, and a big investment in that space. But I would contend that that was led by education. Yeah, you know, like education was playing in this space 15 years ago. Yeah, and still is now, of course, but was really delving into some of these social issues, these mental health issues, these well-being issues 15 years ago. Now, can we improve? Can we keep evolving in that space? Of course we can. But we've led in that space, I would contend. So there's a lot of, um, I guess, another way to frame your question and potentially answer it is what can we learn from each other? Yeah, and I think there's a lot we can learn from each other rather than us always thinking that we can learn from the corporate environment or the not-for-profit environments, there's a lot of crossover, there's a lot of learning that can take place between each of us and we should be looking for that level of community integration. You know, one of the principles that I often put forward when we talk about transformation is how can you integrate your community, so in your case, a school, with the broader community, corporate Australia, not-for-profits, parents, friends, how can we create integration because by creating integration, we build pathways toward learning, toward more deeply understanding some of the issues that we're all facing into. So for me, that community integration piece is really fundamental to system transformation. You talked there about that, that integration between schools and um, its broader community. Um, mm-hmm. And you talked about learning from each other. And we've talked about kind of about culture and understanding your culture and what that may or may not inhibit in what you're trying to achieve. Is there anything that you think we could be doing to, or what could leaders do or where do leaders go to develop their skills in understanding how to do that better? It's not like there's a course, I don't, I don't know anyway, about, you know, this is how as a principal or a leader, you go about integrating your school with your community better. Um, so what do you think we can be doing in that space? Yeah, I'm not sure there's a course. I'm not sure it's a degree, is it? The community integration degree, I'm not sure that exists. <laughs> There's a little lead for yeah. one of the universities Hang around on. the country. No, we're doing that. We're doing that together, Dave. You, you, Luke, me, let's do it. There you go. There you go. Um, so without, without there being a formal place where you go and do that type of learning, because I'm certainly not aware of one, I think this idea of um, safe-to-fail experiments, right, that comes from, you know, the literature that's really quite popular in in many of the corporate environments that I'm attached to, so safe-to-fail experiments. In other words, they're small enough that if they fail, they're not going to pull your whole, whole organisation down, but they're large enough to have impact. I think that's a really good starting point. Like where can we experiment or prototype, if you like, which is probably more a, a language that we use in education, where can we prototype in order to create learning and in turn, move the pendulum, move forward, in this case, in the community integration space, right? That's not so big that if it fails, it's going to have a hugely detrimental effect on the organisation, but is big enough that it creates a pathway. Mm. So for me, maybe that's a starting point, Luke, to answer your question. How can we put safe-to-fail experiments or prototypes into the system to create the learning that we need to create? Mm. Wow. Okay, um, you know, and I love that 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 concept of of um, safe to fail experiments. There's you know, there's there's a lot there we can take away. Sort of, Dave, we're going to sort of move now. You know, as we we move towards the end of our conversation, to some personal reflection time. And you know, one of the things that really enjoyed um, you know our time together um, in the past, but also on our podcast today, is there's such a level of optimism and excitement. You know that, that comes through in the work that you do, and it's just so encouraging. Um, so, as we look forward to the future, um, and you you sort of get to visit and work with schools, what makes you smile? Young people having fun, young people who are engaged, um, young people who are by really caring and professional adults in the environment being offered pathways into their future. That makes me smile. You know, I came into education, I I taught for the number of years that I taught for, I led in residential, I was in wellbeing because I really care for and I'm passionate about the growth of young people. Yeah, so, again, that doesn't change. Sure, I'm, I'm sitting in a different seat now where I work through systems or I work through leadership teams, but for me, the outcome is better educational environments for young people. Yeah, and that doesn't discount better educational or work environments for the rest of us as well, for all of us. 
Yep. So I sort of think it's about everybody moving forward, but that makes me smile. We also like to ask, what's next? What's next for you individually? What's next for future schools? What's what's on the agenda for the next five to ten years? It's a big question. I feel like you're leading me down a strategic planning process here. Like, um, we're just checking under the hood for your culture. Well, we're just holding yeah. we're holding space for you, Dave. That's what we're doing, holding the space. Yeah. So what's next? Um, so I'm currently in, as I was mentioning earlier, um, we're in the final stages of production for a white paper that really talks into system transformation. Right? So how can we create change at a system level? in order to support what I was alluding to earlier, and that is the growth and development of adults in our environment and the growth and development of young people in schools. So for me, probably moving some of my headspace across to how do we support cultural change at a system level has been one off-ramp, if you like. Um, So that's an area that I'm really quite interested in, quite passionate about. It's funny, I'm cycling back through this space of how can the foresight and futures tools that I spoke to right at the start of the podcast inform some of the creativity, the playfulness and the imagination required to craft new and emerging cultures and to support the change that we want to see within schools. So I'm cycling right back through that a decade after first being in that space. And it's funny how that happens. Like I I feel like everything has of time and certain things become ripe at different times. So those two things have been really fundamental for me in the last two or three months, if you like. So system transformation and how can foresight and futures tools be used to support change within schools and systems. So Luke, you know, with that, is it time to move into your favorite section uh, or part of our podcast or do we hold off? No, I'm I'm ready to roll. I just I just wondered whether you had the crystal ball question in you, Matt, because we love to get the crystal ball out um, <laughs> and uh, see uh, where Dave thinks uh, you know the the future of education is going. Well, it'd be remiss mm. of us not to give Dave an opportunity um, to talk to the crystal ball and where education is going. So, Dave, what are your thoughts? Especially seeing he is uh, one of the directors of future future schools. schools. Yeah, future schools. The crystal ball. So you're asking me, you know, what I imagine the future of schooling to look like? Yeah. Okay. Um, Ten-year horizon. Yeah. So the, so the horizon conversation, I think there's, um, well, certainly what I'm seeing at the moment is a growing interest in how do we increase personal resilience, adaptability, agility across organisations, but also at a personal level. I'm, I'm hearing whispers of that conversation play out. Um, I'm seeing a move toward um, social enterprise. I'm seeing a move toward, you know, design thinking and all of those sort of creative ventures that support the creation of, you know, new ideas, new pathways. And we're seeing buildings pop up all over the world that support that type of initiative. So I think that's going to be part of it. Um, I was reading recently this idea of environmental education, and it's funny because that had a that had a time and it still has a time now. It's still in the conversation, but I'm feeling like that's going to be amplified within schools. You know, how can we support young people? How can we support ourselves to understand environmental education at a deeper level? So I think those themes are certainly um, on my radar, on the horizon. I like it. I think I think you're I think you're onto something with a couple of those. And you know, that last point around the environment, and I think you're right, it has had its time, but it does seem that we need to kind of come back to that at some point, I think. But uh, that brings uh, us to, as Matt said, my favourite segment, six in 60 seconds. Uh, one word or idea, Dave. No no one follows the rules that it's one word or idea. So you do what you like and I'll give you a score at the end. One educational narrative that's been underrated or overrated in the past decade. Uh, underrated and on the move is adult play. I think that we need to find play and playfulness and joy in what we do. The most interesting PD you've ever done? Most interesting PD I've ever done. It's really, can I come back to that? You've broken a rule, but that's okay. We'll come back to it. The most interesting (laughs) person you've met in the last two years? Laura McBain and um, Louis Montoya, who are the directors at D School at Stanford University and the work they're doing in design thinking and futures and foresight, I think is Fabulous work. 
broken the rules again. There was two people there, but that's okay. We'll move on. <laughs> if you could change one rule or one thing in education, what would it be? I was talking to a good colleague of mine recently, and the one thing that I would change is every 45 minutes, we have a 15-minute playtime, play space, time for recreation, time for stretching, time for moving, every 45 minutes. One book worth reading? Oh, there's so many. Um, In Teachers We Trust by Parsi Solberg, I think is fabulous. It's right here next to me, so that's why I've mentioned it. In Teachers We Trust, The Finish Way, Parsi Solberg. One person we should interview on the podcast. Oh, Tonya Bentley um, is a deputy principal from New South Wales, and I think her work particularly around um, building adaptive capacity through adaptive leadership and how she's forging cultural evolution and change is first class. And circling back, the most interesting PD you've ever done? I think it's probably going back a long way. Okay, so it's going back maybe 15 years, and I did a huge amount of PD around resilience and personal resilience and how that inner work can support us in our leadership work. So for me, personal resilience training was fundamental to my educational and leadership journey. All right. Not bad. You followed the rules for the most part. I'll give you an 8.5 out of 10 today. Well done, Dave. (laughs) That brings an end to our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed our chat with Dave. Uh, Matt, closing comments. Hit us with them. I know you've got them. There's a few I'm sure that you've got circled on your page there. There's so much. And I guess um, the most exciting thing about, you know, our discussion today is, is, um, you know, just just some of the practical tools for change and innovation and and the encouragement for leaders and teachers. Um, So it's been absolutely great. I love um, that that first thing that we spoke about, about tuning in, you know, what's the tune beneath the words someone's saying? And and if we're thinking about people bringing their whole self to work, there's a great thing for us to learn there. that notion of systems evolution from the um, ground up, if you like, honouring the professionalism and agency of people that are really close to the work. That really resonated with me this morning and following the energy, um, finding the, the green shoots. Um, I also really enjoyed our conversation around that commitment imperative. You know, if we really want a change to occur, you've got to prioritise and privilege that. Um and supporting that transformation, holding the space, speaking truth, that shared responsibility and independent judgment um, really rang true for me this morning, Dave. Um, and also, you know, I love that safe to fail experiments. Um, sometimes you just got to give it a crack um, and and see what happens. So that'd be some of the, the things that really spoke to me this morning and I'll certainly hold and take into the day into my work. Um, Luke, what have you got? Well, you pretty much just mentioned the whole podcast, Matt, so uh, that doesn't leave me much to work with. Um, But I did have underlined uh, the tune of the words. Surprise, surprise, we're in alignment there. What's what's happening with the tune underneath the words when people talk to us? Um, The broad strokes around the culture within an environment, you talked about kind of like the openness to speaking the unspeakables, um, sharing the responsibility and the personal agency to be able to create change and I think uh, just kind of talking more broadly about culture and, underst- and having people understand those aspects of it I think is is really important. You then also talked about the structural elements, um, the policies, the procedures, the processes which underpin, um, you know, at a systems level our ability to, to enact and work within um, what, we, what we have to, to enact change. I also really like the um, that the toll is different. Mm. That toll of change is different for different people, um, and that goes to that notion that not everyone can change at the same pace, and that's okay. Um, and then we talked about how, as a leader, how important that is to understand, you know, how different people's toll works. I guess, um, and the best leaders who are enacting change really understand that at a fundamental le- level. Their people. Um, and one of the last things that you said there was the solutions to many of these things sit, I think you said sits between us and in us. And I think that's a really interesting idea that that solutions are around us and we just have to find the time to think and probably sit with them for long enough that we understand them at a deeper level. Um, and I think, you know, in a recent kind of conversation that Matt and I had with another guest on the podcast, it's that time to think and carving out that time to think in order to 
understand where those solutions are um, is is really important. So, Dave, on that note, I really want to thank you for giving up your time to uh, be on the show today. I certainly appreciated you um, and your time that you've given Matt and I specifically over the last two years and, and the conversations that we've had. Um, and today was no different. Uh, for the audience out there, if they want to connect with you, where's the best place that they can do that? And uh, any closing comments from yourself? Sure. Um, so the audience can find me on LinkedIn, um, Dave Runge. So you'll find me there. Um, you can also jump on our website at Future Schools. Um, so if you type in Future Schools, you'll find us there. And I'm sure you can connect through there as well. Um, my email address is available there. So please feel free. Guys, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. And, and I do believe what I said earlier, that the solutions sit between us, they sit within us, and it's how do we liberate that, how do we unleash that potential is really at the heart of the work that I'm so passionate about and that I do every day. Um, like you guys, I've really enjoyed today. Um, it's been a great conversation. So thanks for having us. Awesome. Now, for the audience out there, remember, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and don't forget to share the love and tell a few of your colleagues that you've listened to this awesome podcast um, and all the things that future schools are doing and that Dave's doing, uh, you know, understanding culture and change. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you have not signed up for the Ed Letters newsletter, you are missing out. We publish every couple of weeks and it's jam-packed with nuggets about how to level up your school leadership game. Check out edleaders.com.au for more details. We'd sincerely like to thank uh, the sponsors of today's show and we would be very grateful if you could spend just a few minutes just a few minutes is all we ask going to their website and checking them out as they support us to help make this great professional learning free for you. Well, at least we think it's great. So if you could check them out, that would be good. You can get with Ed Leaders and both of us on LinkedIn where we'll keep you up to date with all the latest. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. Go well. <laughs>